Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This is my 147th podcast. Seems quite remarkable. I've been doing it for so long. I finally got to this. What I'm scraping the barrel with today is a thing I wrote with my friend Dov Rigel about 30 years ago, long before Red Dwarf, honestly. This is episode one of The Sanity Factor. This is a story of everyday folk, the sort that most people try to avoid but meet every day. The folk in question had thought about being normal. They tried it for a bit, but they stopped. The effort of pretending to be boring was too much. They wanted more out of life than getting on with other people who could keep up the pretense better than them. They were all failures in the eyes of the boring normals, but they had fun. So you have some idea of what it is that happened and to whom. Here is a bit of help. In the Encyclopedia Galactica databanks are these uh, comments about this happy band of the socially outcast. Timothy. Basically, a nice type of chap. Terran normal, but it wasn't kind to tell him that. Opposed to violence, mainly because he was normally hit the hardest. Well spoken, in the hope that that sort of person would talk to him. At the time in question, he had yet to see the flaw in that idea. Like most quiet people, he tended to be very loud when nobody was looking or when he was with friends. He had a mind that others would think of as being electrical, but he knew that he knew nothing of any real use. He was also aware that Martin knew this too, but it was all part of the fun to keep up a pretense. In later life this became a reality, however. Martin, also basically nice. Real Hell's Angels are, when uh, you were on the right side of them, well, that's what Martin believed. He had to make his idea of himself true in order to survive the torments that life sent. He would like to have been big and strong, and then have the choice to be magnanimous about being small and quiet, but he didn't have that choice. When he played the tough guy, he was always worried that he would get found out. It was not obvious if he was aware that his greatest strength was his ability to make people like him. Eliza a cat. Like any other, unlike any other. She belonged to Timothy's family and was thought of as a very pretty idiot, although sometimes she did seem to think just a bit. She was a long-haired tortoiseshell mongrel, and small with it. She would chase anything that wouldn't turn round, and found it impossible to learn from experience, initially. Computer built originally by Timothy from a kit. So, as he didn't know how it works, he couldn't mend it when he thought it didn't. The computer was the cause of all things, so it appeared, but it was master of none. It used a highly advanced linguistics program and voice synthesizer that Timothy had devised but had forgotten. Being electrical, the computer had an understanding of the electrical world and from the point of its elevation to sentience by the sudden addition of coffee, was aware of this. 
The affinity with things electric comes in very handy at those trying times when life was threatened. Intergalactic rescue. This hapless consortium of the Mr. Fixits of the universe believe themselves to be the knights in shining armour of the spaceways. At this point in history, they have caused the Tunguska event, when they helped a passing space freighter into Earth orbit, the abandoning of the Apollo 13 moon mission when they mended the cooling fan in the service module, and all the hold-ups of the space race since the moon landings, and the cancelling of the Brabazon, to name but a few. At one stage of their illustrious existence, they ended many of television's best sci-fi series by destroying the real characters on which they were based. This is a story of when the good bit of their lives started. On a day in deep space. The Enterprise wasn't having its best day ever. The film Search for Spock hadn't been made yet, so they were not expecting any sort of terminal disaster. No one had heard of the extras taken on that trip, as it was obvious that they wouldn't last long and there was no point in paying any attention to them. They were wearing red shirts, after all. The big names were too concerned, wondering which one of them would be on that trip's critical list and at the last moment recover unexpectedly, to bother looking for the unexpectedly unexpected, but that was all usual. The odd bit, the bit that will mean the rescheduling of the world's TV for years, was yet to happen. In a small cabin on top of an oddly shaped sort of crane thing on an even more oddly shaped sort of deep space garage, a monster sat watching telly. The bog showed the aforementioned, well-known Enterprise Bridge. All was going well until a red alert alarm signal control relay took it into its mind to operate. That sent out the type of automatic distress signal for which the highly ill-trained wizened monster had been waiting. A small green light labelled Bonus had lit on the monster's control panel. This sent him into frenzied activity. There was a tried and tested system for dealing with priority distress signals, and it was all written about somewhere. Help! screamed the endearing beast knowingly. Then, as he randomly punched buttons in the hope of calling up the instruction booklet, No, 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 oh dear, which one is it? There was an explosion relayed over the TV monitor speakers as the Enterprise vanished several years earlier than expected. This was the rather unfortunate side effect of employing a school lever as rescue call operative. At this terrifying moment in space history, oh dear, was the best that he could come up with. Our scene then cuts to a shot of a similar but authoritative monster, the boss. He had never left school. My idol, I don't believe it. Surely that was similar enough even for you. Sorry, boss. Uh, you were lucky there were no survivors. You can always say it was another Klingon attack. One more mistake out of you, and you're out of intergalactic rescue for good. The scene changes again to show a quiet residential road. Neatly kept houses with net curtains. Every garden has a gnome, and outside each house was parked a Sinclair C5 and a hatchback car of some description. 
The quiet of a Sunday afternoon was destroyed by the thunderous roar of a large, black, backfiring motorbike, and it's not much quieter rider, an even dirtier, leather-clad wannabe ruffian. He pulls up outside one of the houses, the only difference between it and the others in this road of Stepwood Wives' perfection being the odd positions of the gnomes in its pond. As his bike had no stand... He leant it against a C-5. Violently, he thumped his bike horn as a genial way of saying hello to most of the road, but to Tim in particular. Nothing much happened except that he bruised his hand, so he used the C-5's horn, which played a little tune. He thumped it again until he didn't. A woman, evidently a member of the local neighbourhood watch committee, was walking her dog. She had been watching these exploits. Young man. Yes, you. What do you think you're doing with that card? Stop it at once, or I shall have to call the police. At this Martin, as that was who he was, did little but reply, Yeah, do you know you've got a rat on the end of that string? I'll give you a quid for it. Two if you cook it first. Oh, my word, how could you be so rude? I must tell you, I have a weak heart. It's okay, love. I'm in favour of euthanasia. He takes off his helmet. Oh, it's you, Martin, says the woman. Try not to be home late. You have your voice to remember. You won't get to be cantor if you don't get enough rest, you know. Okay, Mum. See you. Timothy had been watching unconcerned from an upstairs window. Martin walked up to the house. The door opened automatically. Tim hailed his friend over the intercom. Bring some coffee up with you, Martin, and the biscuits. There's a good lad. Piss off. The request was slightly reasonable, as the machine had spent all day and several pounds keeping a jug full of the stuff hot. Martin poured some out, some of which got into the mugs, but quite a bit didn't. Tim was bent over a worktop which was covered with wires. So was he. He was connecting a few together. Then he jammed some more into a plug not designed for them. How's it going then, my thirsty buddy? Nearly done. There. Tim threw a massive circuit breaker to on. There was a flash and a hum, which built up to a loud buzz as Tim became rather agitated. The hum suddenly stopped dead. To help things along, Tim thumped the biggest, most easily thumpable part. Do you really think that's ever going to get this lot to work? You can't keep hitting it indefinitely. I'll have to eat definitely then. As he continued so to do, it burst back into life. Martin, being a quick type when he was on to a winner, pointed to the floor from where the buzzing was coming. An electric shaver was to blame, although it was not its fault that it was grooming the carpet so busily. So that's the result of three weeks' work, is it? Martin said in an interested voice. Tim ripped out the offending wire and the buzzing stopped. The resulting silence was just long enough for them both to notice that their hands hurt from hitting things too much. Oh, the theory is sound enough. I've just finished putting in the last of the computer memory. The, that old video recorder should work like a feedback loop. The idea is that the data is temporarily stored on tape at a very high speed and then repeated later when the computer had forgotten about it. And that way the poor old box will feel it's really very clever. Will it be? No, but it's a thought that counts. Very droll.
The next thing is to get its speech systems going. Then it can answer all your stupid questions. My questions are not stupid. I suppose for bike mechanic they're not, but as a bike mechanic you're pretty stupid. One of these days I will get tired of pushing that old rust heap of yours all over the place. Isn't it usual for a bike to move by itself once in a while? After this small outburst, Tim remembered the bike in greater detail. I hope you were more careful in parking it after last time. As it happened, Martin had not been all that careful. So bad was he at bike-leaving that a cat, Eliza, who was sitting in the C5, began her part in this tale of woe. She jumped up and out of the C5, disturbing the precarious balance of the bike against which it is leaning. It fell, crashingly, downwards, the best direction for falling. The sound couldn't go unregarded. It was very crashing. Anyway, Marty would know it anywhere, and he did. Quickly and almost instinctively, he tried to change the subject. Well, uh, at least tell me what the high fives hooked up for. To talk with. You wanted to sound tatty? Why should it talk at all? I like to have somebody around who can really appreciate my genius. Oh, is the computer working today at all? Should be. Martin fumbled around, looking for the right set of plugs. Tim quietly twisted two eyes together and attained a satisfying click, which Martin triumphantly thought was due to him. Don't bother, I've done it myself, he beamed vocally. Fire up the invader game, will you? Tim did. It was a very high-speed game, almost too fast for anybody else to follow. Martin could play very well, so the score rose fast. The sweat stood out on his forehead, and he tensed himself the all-important, really good bit where there was a lot to shoot at. Eliza then appeared on the windowsill, and thumped the double glazing from the outside in the feline equivalent of a polite cough. Hellfire, quoth Martin as he missed the mystery ship and got blown up. Did you know your cat was on the windowsill? Great, I suppose I'll have to take down all the glass and get her out. Stick the coffee somewhere safe and give me some help, will you? After a bit of a struggle, they manhandled the cat through the previously hermetically sealed window. The poor little terrified animal that had been hitherto so helplessly trapped and doomed to starvation showed her undying gratitude by squirming out of Tim's grasp in a spiky sort of way and started to play unconcernedly with the electric razor. Just to show willing, the razor began to play too. At its first unexpected buzz, Eliza ran under Tim's bed. It was not an easy thing to do for her, as the space had already been well taken care of by a large number of dustily useless and forgotten oddments generated by Tim's lifestyle. "'Do you uh, normally keep your cat under the bed?' asked Martin, wondering if Eliza counted as an oddment. "'The only way I can get her out is to lure her with the promise of chocolate.' But for that I need some silver paper, and I've none left, so she can stay there and suffer. At that he hides a quite large but quite touched bar of chocolate under a book. Just as long as she doesn't get interested in my wires again. 
The smell of part cooked cat takes ages to clear now I have this double glazing up. He gestured towards the newly gaping hole that had been his pride and joy, and thought again about taxidermy. By then it was almost impossible to move for sheets of glass, so they put them back up. When they had finished, the glass was not quite a perfect fit, as they had put them in the wrong spaces. But, being up and not on the floor, they were there to stay. At last, the two lads could get back to doing whatever it was. Martin looked forlornly at the TV screen, which had been asking him to now write your name for the last fifteen minutes. As he was still a bit peevish, he said, "'How long are you going to be working on this thing now? Doctor Who is on in three days.' "'I guess not long. If I think about it before answering you, ages.' They said the war would be over by Christmas. It is. Don't think so much. You'll hurt yourself. With such banter, they traditionally drove the realities of the world and its boringness away. Cheered, Tim returned his attention to his baby. Just be a nice chap, Martin, and hold this bit down while I work on it. No. Please. No, but louder. Who told you what he does? I don't play with things that smoke unless I lit them. It'll only be for a minute anyway. It's only glowing a bit. Ouch! Okay, okay. Use these pliers. Have you uh, any rubber ones? Cautious lad. Will radiation gloves be good enough for you? Tim had a pair that he bought once because they might one day come in useful, and they were cheap. This was the only time in three years that they'd even been thought about, let alone used. Okay, thanks. This bit here? He prodded a circuit board as gently as he could when wearing massive lead-impregnated rubber gloves. No! Tim's method of connecting electrical wires to the mains occasionally resulted in spontaneous ons and offs. One of these ons was then sent to the electric razor. Eliza, who had not taken her eyes from it as she aggressively hid under the bed, charged out with a fast killing urge set in her by millions of years of being house-trained. Tim, who had never learned how to cope with sudden cat acts, accidentally trod on her. A cat-like scream hurt his ears, alerting him to this fact. He leapt sideways against the television. This slid gently sideways, down and several feet, to brush delicately in slow motion against the coffee. The two mugs of thick brown undrinkable sludge that Martin and Tim loved to leave to get cold before pouring away had been waiting for this very moment to take their revenge for hours of pointlessly being heated and fizzled malevolently into the guts of the computer. The blue flashes and smoke that were but shouldn't have been created hid the computer TV display. This was showing the same set of commands that a little wizened blue monster was at that time trying to read on his console. If universe in danger, then press button 3, else go to T. For X equals 1 to 10, print 3 lumps please, next X. Immediately a new light started to flash on the monster's panel. 
Its label of Priority One called up a reference number from the monster's memory. 021-356-77822. He had remembered it. Wrongly. The follow-up was that he wrongly typed it into his console, just to find out what it did. He heard a very pretty-sounding klaxon a few miles away. It made his ears ring a bit. Uh, by then, most of the cabin systems had been quietly overloaded. All the lights that hadn't blown were already either very brightly lit or needed help reading. All that happened of consequence to the operator was that the kettle boiled. Its whistle, the right cue for the monster behind that monster, the shop steward, to awake and do his job. All right, a tea break, down tools, and move out. Not wanting to do anything that might be disapproved of, our small monster complied. He was a very small monster after that. Oh well, he'll wait. As he left for his well-earned rest, yet another light ignited. This one was a bit special. It was captioned, Recovery Initiated. Back in Tim's bedroom, uncountable light-years away, the smoke had not yet cleared. It had been mixed with recently created dust from recently broken walls. The very walls that once connected the room to the house. Those walls. So the room was free to move, which it had done. Martin, have you been putting catnip in the coffee again? Or is the room really full of dust? Uh, yes to the catnip, but you haven't drunk it yet, and I don't know to the dust. From the depths of the new gloom of the room, perhaps even from the computer's speech systems, came a tentative voice test. Mary had a little lamb. It could have been years of watching TV westerns, but in said gloom, Martin was almost sure that he might just be able to see the very dim figure of someone who could be said to look very much like a very famous but imaginary character of... Uh, but it was walking away, so Martin stopped looking. Strong stuff, that catnip. Better stick to Don Martin's. Martin did a quick body count on all the important people in the room. One, me. That's all right, then. What? Any idea what happened? Mm. Oh, I thought not. When's lunch? For several lengthy seconds, the computer had been collecting evidence for the promising theory that life forms based on carbon rather than silicon were not only possible, but were in the room at that moment. It sat there for the human equivalent of a couple of years' thinking time, and then came up with a voice test that caused so much nothing reaction-wise in the carbon-based life forms. Mildly interested by this lack of fellow interest in what must then be a totally new form of life, the computer embarked on an extensive investigation into the makeup of these primitive creatures. After prolonged thought, lasting a few but tedious milliseconds in normal time, it shared a few concepts with which it had just come up. In cases of extreme confusion, humans normally resort to food. Timothy was so surprised by this comment that he spoke to Martin. Do you know how much damage you must have done? I spent at least half the chips being blasted clean off the board. It probably won't work very well now. Taking that as a personal remark, 
The computer deigned to reply, Thanks. Did you say that, Martin? No. The next obvious candidate was Eliza. As it wasn't her, she didn't respond. She looked accusingly at the razor. Meanwhile, back in the space garage controlled cabin at Intergalactic Rescue, a monster was just shaking some more catnip into his intergalactic coffee analogue when the other monster, the union shop steward, became tired again. He yawned. T-Rex over, back to your work. Both monsters resumed their allotted tasks, one sleeping until the next coffee break, and the other wondering what to do next. He vaguely remembered that there was some sort of crisis going on a while back. Probably all right now, though. On his indicator panel, a new light signalled, Recovery aborted. As this was news to him, he looked it up wrongly. Then, safe in the knowledge that all was well, incorrectly, he pressed another wrong button, and the Apollo 11 descent stage vanished from the moon to appear in dry dock at the garage for repairs. Martin was still concerned about food, a good safe subject if there was any readily available. The dust had settled enough for them to look out of the window. Must have been a big bang. Big enough. To have shifted the street. Put it back. I'm quite attached to it. Where my house is. I uh, quite like tartan cobbles. They go well with the uh, green clouds. It's also upmarket. Tim took this as a hint that the view from the window, now very badly redoubled glazed, wasn't quite that of a suburban Sunday. This would normally mean it was Saturday or something even more wonderful. This time, however, it was different. Ever since I've known you, Martin, you've been utterly unable to appreciate danger. Now I've found you don't even recognise a disaster when you see one. How did you do it anyway? Must have been you, wasn't it? Yep, you're right. It weren't me, it was you. You trodden the cat. Oh, yes. Seems like a long time ago. Got any plasters? Gasket sealing any good? To be honest, no. So it was her fault. She made me knock coffee all over the computer. Both mugs, and I wrote it off. But I can't see how that would have... Wouldn't make any difference. The computer hardly ever works anyway, gloomed Martin, on a safely understood subject. By then, the computer had managed to slow its thinking down enough to follow the complex interplay of insults, sped up again to recover from the shock of so little happening at that rate, and then down again so as to answer the slight made against it. For a supposedly sentient life form, you are very unobservant. For a supposedly bus computer, that's very rude. Well done, Tim. What? Was that the computer? Oh, so now you're getting used to me. What is going on? If it isn't you, Martin, it must be Eliza's fault. I am, therefore, I'll think about it, said the computer helpfully. Dame, have you been philosophising into that thing again? Where did you get that from? Tim had by then got a few salient mental threads pulled together. He immediately lost them, so he insulted Martin to calm himself. Martin, your tiny intellect just can't cope with this, and, and, and only a major breakthrough in computer science. Nothing to be laid back about. Computer, he said, hopefully expecting buzz fizzle. 
How much of the world missed the fun? Rather unkindly, the computer answered the question. Then it did it again when Tim got over the shock. All of it except your bedroom and half of the landing. The world is just where you left it. I will tell you where you are now, in a few minutes. Does this mean there's no fast food shops about? I could just do with a little something. Tim found the temptation too much. Hello, little something. Come with me and I'll show you my lower intestine. Then he returned to the new reality as Martin began to look for his something. Hmm. Where are we then? Don't ask me. I found some warm chocolate under a book and I, I think I know where there's a straw. During the interminable delay between understandable comments, the computer tried to fathom the depths of its roommate's minds. It found them to be almost limitless. Then it found it had overshot their mental boundaries by an almost unlimited amount. That realisation left the computer feeling very smug. So smugly, it said, we are on Gimlet 5, the only planet in the Gimlet star system. Very clever. I don't suppose you'd like to tell us how you know that or who programmed you. He wasn't me, and that's positive. May I point out, pointed out the computer, no one programmed you, and yet some would say you exist. Well, that's hardly an answer, is it? The coffee was spilt, and from thenceforth I was. I'm as susceptible to drugs as are you humans. So you really don't know either. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk.